It hasn't been 45 years since I've worshipped here, but it is still uh, a great pleasure and privilege to be here together. A lot of us are coming and going this summer. The summertime can be a time of transitions in our lives, people changing jobs, changing houses, uh, and other changes in our lives. It's good to have a place to come home to each Sunday, to worship together, to have a community that grounds us in the love of God and the calling of God in our lives. And it is good to be together this morning. Nonetheless, we have a very difficult text before us, one that some say is the most theologically demanding story in the Bible. Uh, Before I read it, uh, maybe it would be good to have a little context. Back at the very beginning of recorded history, God, the Creator, who did not even have a name yet, stirs in the hearts and souls of an ancient nomadic couple and plants an idea in their brain that God is creating a people to show the rest of the world who God is and what God desires and hopes for from all people. Uh, God's word is a blessing to them, and it is a promise. For this couple is very old. They have no children. And then, finally, the promise is fulfilled. A son is born, Isaac. Isaac already has an older half-brother, named Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah find a way to uh, get Ishmael and his mother uh, out of the scene, so to speak. But God takes care of Hagar and her son too, reminding Abraham and Sarah and all of us that there are no expendable people, no disposable people, that God is compassionate to the outcasts. So the story of God and God's people continues. Isaac grows up, becomes a young adult. Isaac will be the one to keep the promise going, to inherit the blessings and the responsibilities. And then one day, Abraham hears the voice of God, who now has a name, although no one is allowed to ever say it. It's just a series of Hebrew consonants, which we pronounce Yahweh, And Abraham hears Yahweh saying something. Let us listen now to what Abraham hears and to what he does. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Notice how he repeatedly identifies him as if he wants to be sure Abraham has the right son now. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the 
wood for the burnt offering and placed it on the back of his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place where God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of cities and throughout your, and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what is your candidate for the worst moment in American history? Many people, especially younger people, would probably say 9-11. If you were older, you might have other dates in mind, other events. One event that stands out to me uh, occurred when I was in high school. It was in 1970 when units of the Ohio National Guard opened fire on college students at Kent State University who were demonstrating against the Vietnam War. And several students were killed by American soldiers on American soil. And in the aftermath, a distinguished American artist, George Seagal, was commissioned to do a sculpture in memory of the students who were killed. And he chose to do a sculpture of the story of Abraham and Isaac for his theme. He cast them in modern clothing, and he depicted the son kneeling before the father, and Abraham with his arm raised up with the knife in his hand. And the governor of the state of Ohio, James Rhodes, wouldn't let that sculpture be 
erected anywhere in the state of Ohio. And so that sculpture sits behind the chapel in a storage area uh, behind the chapel at Princeton University. There are a lot of good reasons for staying away from this story and keeping it at a distance. That is rather obvious. As a father of four sons, I can't imagine a more abhorrent story. What in the world is going on here? What kind of God would say such a thing to a parent? What kind of person would imagine in his prayer life or wherever he was that God was telling him to do this? We would think that person would be deranged. What kind of adult son would stand there and just docilely let his father do what he was preparing to do? What kind of Bible do we have that has stories like this? This is the problem with religion, isn't it? We have so many stories like this that seem crazy and seem to be just ugly and violent and, and of no real good for us today. It's an embarrassment, isn't it? Couldn't we skip over it? Just focus on the epistle lesson for today, maybe. And yet, and yet the ancient tradition is that Mount Moriah is the very spot where Solomon's temple was later located. And of course, there's really no empirical evidence that this is the case. It's just a tradition. Actually, this story is not even mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, it was not a, really a part of Jewish piety until a, just before the time of Christ, and the story was recovered and began to be told again, and obviously in the time of the New Testament church, it, it was remembered. And we recall the words of John the Baptist uh, speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so we, we have a long history of interpretation of this story. In the, in the uh, religion of Islam, the story is seen differently, and it is Ishmael who is the favored son and who is, who is sacrificed or threatened to be sacrificed. Uh, there are many ways that one might look at this story, and I trust that my words today will be a launching point for you to wrestle with this text yourself this week. And so, without, with all of these reasons for avoiding it, there are some good reasons for delving into this story. Let me begin with this. Uh, Gregory Jones, who was the dean of the chapel of Duke Divinity School, wrote an essay about parenting in which he refers to this story. And Jones describes a conversation he had with a parent in which uh, she said that her approach to parenting responsibility was, I just want my children to be happy. And Jones suggests that I just want my children to be happy has become a sort of mantra, a catch-all moral imperative for parents. I just want them to be happy. What could be simpler? What could be more basic than that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting our children to be happy? Uh, 
Last year, I read a book by Mary Piper, one of my favorite authors. She's a family therapist. She observed about her own profession that when we lost track of character in our work and focused on self-esteem, we therapists made a mistake. Jennifer Sr. has written a best-selling book about parenting, and she has this chapter called Concerned Cultivation, in which she describes such parenting, concerned cultivation, as placing intense labor demands on parents who are exhausted, and their children become exhausted, and the whole process emphasizes individual development at the expense of family welfare. After-school baseball isn't just sandlot games or Little League. It's being on the right team with the right coach, with a private batting tutor, and out-of-town trips and select opportunities. And the summers are now a week-to-week series of immersion experiences and courses and talent-optimizing times. The sole job of parents, it seems, is the physical and financial security of their children, the happiness of their children. In contrast to, I think, my parents' generation, where I know my dad and his siblings were expected to contribute to the welfare of the family. The family needed them to work on the farm or in the family business. And after school or on the weekends or before school, that's exactly what they did. And he raised me with a little bit of that. I remember as a little boy in Ohio being made to get up out of bed on Saturday mornings and pull weeds for his yard. I could not figure out why I had to do that and miss cartoons. But I see that as a carryover of the, the assumption that children are supposed to contribute to the welfare, the well-being of the whole and that the parents don't exist for the children. And yet, I know in my parenting, and I bet in yours, we have made a lot of sacrifices, a lot of sacrifices for our kids. And most of them, we're probably glad that we did. Very few do I regret. Uh, I'm, I'm very, even to this day, I'm, I'm still making sacrifices for them. I had a conversation with... Uh, a, a friend last night who talked about paying for his children's college education and how they had put off buy, uh, buying a, a new roof for their house or uh, replacing their old beat-up car with a, a new car, uh, making sacrifices for our kids. We just almost automatically want to do that. And yet, I wonder what kind of sacrifices are unholy and what are the ones that are holy what sacrifices are acceptable to God and what are the ones that are not acceptable Thomas Cahill the author that wrote how the Irish saved civilization he talks about the history of human sacrifice it's not a very fun Topic, and I won't labor uh, the, this subject, but it was nonetheless 
in existence in the time of Abraham and Sarah, for sure. And he would suggest that this story is a symbolic renunciation, the dramatization of an unrecoverable moment in prehistory when proto-Jews gave up the practice of human sacrifice and when their, even when their neighbors around them continued to engage in it. So this story should be seen as the last religiously motivated and unnecessarily unnecessary killing or threat of killing. Let us be clear, there was not a killing. God intervened to stop it. Now, we can't know about that ancient history for sure, but what Cahill thinks is happening is the emergence of an idea of God that is different from anything else in history. Ancient people were polytheists. They had a lot of gods. Divinity was lodged in statutes and amulets, and they were all over the place. And religion was a kind of good luck charm to ward off wild animals and, and uh, bad weather and enemies. Religion was a good luck charm, and what happened to them was the emergence of, of a god, Abraham and Sarah, a god who is a creator, one creator and provider for all, one God who comes down to engage people, to talk to them, to give guidance to them, a God far greater than statutes and amulets and good luck charms. This is a God who obviously is not always manageable, not even always understandable yet a God who can be counted on, counted on to be present and involved in our lives, a God who in an ultimate way can be trusted with our lives and the lives of our dearest ones. A long time ago, British theologian and scholar J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Do you remember that book? It talked about the fundamental heresy of our time, the creation of a God designed to meet our needs, to fit our expectations, our intellectual capacity, our lifestyle, sometimes irritable, but always understandable and manageable. This God, Philip said, is too small. And I think it continues to be the case. Someone observed recently a that there is an innocuous God of civil religion, a, a God who wants no more from us than an occasional acknowledgement in public places, maybe the posting of the Ten Commandments on a wall somewhere. Uh, no real God of sovereign power and love, but merely our own amulet, a good luck charm to ward off evil, to win elections or wars. Cahill writes, can we open ourselves to something larger, to a God who cannot be always or perhaps ever understood? A God who is beyond our amulets, our scheming. All other gods are figments, projections of human desire. Only this God is worth my life and Isaac's life. There is no other 
when Abraham and Isaac learned that day, what they learned that day was that life with God in God's providence and grace is authentic human life, and it calls for something deep from out of us, some willingness to trust what is most precious to us, some willingness to give and sacrifice and live for something other than our own survival or even our children's happiness. It is what Dana just talked about a few minutes ago in her minute for mission. Abraham and Isaac learned this day that it is important important to learn that we are not really alive until we find something worth giving our life for. Back in 1950 at Princeton Seminary, there was a Chinese Christian student who had narrowly escaped imprisonment and death in his country, and, and he gave a prayer in chapel one day which moved his fellow students, and his, his prayer ended with this, O oh God, give us something to die for, for if we have nothing for which we would die, we are not alive Gregory Jones, whom I quoted earlier, suggests that what we need is the gift of a cause, a project, a mission, a vocation that calls to the very depths of our soul and is big enough and important enough and holy enough to be worthy of our all. We should protest, he says, not only when children are abused or neglected, but when they are left with shallow and hollow lives because they have never been invited or required to live for something more significant than their own success. That is why a trip such as ASP is so important Trips like that, experiences like that, our partnership in Haiti, RBI, so many things that our church does, they give us glimpses, they give us practice of how to find significance beyond ourselves. That's what Abraham and Isaac learned on Mount Moriah. Centuries later, another man would climb a mountain, and like Isaac... He carried wood for an altar. He would carry a cross. And the meaning and the message would be the same, that there are some things worth dying for. And to know that and to find passion and love is to know what it is to be truly alive. And that God wants for each and every one of us, wants us, to be truly alive, wants us to learn to care and to love and to give our hearts, our our lives, our time, our giving, to say yes, to make that commitment to be fully and joyfully alive. And as we do that, and probably only when we do that, 
we discover that God can be fully trusted with our futures, our death, our lives. The man carrying his cross was a true child of Abraham. He was Jesus, the Christ, our Savior and Lord. To him be all praise. Amen.